So Psalm 110, did you know, is the most quoted or alluded to psalm in the New Testament. Jesus quotes it in the Gospels. We'll see Peter and Acts, Paul and Peter in their letters. And the book of Hebrews mentions it in seven out of the 13 chapters. So with all these references, it should be really easy for us to understand the psalm, right? However, the challenge is to see through how these pieces all come together. But when we do, we're going to see a twist today. Maybe something that you haven't seen before, that we didn't see coming. So open your Bibles as we look at Psalm 110. We're going to look at first what David wrote, then how Jesus sees it, and then we're going to see how Jesus fulfills Psalm 110 as the king priest with that twist ending, okay? So, point one, Psalm 10, 110, according to David. David writes this psalm, psalm about a king. It's a royal psalm. There are three main actors you see in the first verse. You have David, the author, Yahweh, the Lord, that's all caps, L-O-R-D, is Yahweh, or God the Father. And David's Lord, Adonai, in Hebrew, the king priest. So David is painting a musical tapestry of a great king. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh, I am who I am, says to my David's Lord, that's, that's who's telling the story. So these are the main actors. There are a few ways that this psalm mirrors David's conquest and rule from Jerusalem, right? But from the very first verse, he makes it clear that he is thinking about a greater king. Because we're going to see right away that God is raising up a definite king to subdue his enemies. God is raising up a divinity king to subdue his enemies. And almost every verse carries this theme. So verse 1, we're going to walk through the psalm really quickly. The first one opens the first what are two oracles. This is like a prophetic oracle. Thus says the Lord, God promises this Lord, Adonai, who is sitting at his right hand, he will sit there until his enemies are subdued, and they will remain his footstool. You know, you go back in ancient, uh, ancient Near East, you see this theme. In fact, one of the pharaohs, uh, Tutankhamen, after the time of Moses, he actually has a footstool showing his enemies bound with their hands behind them, being subdued by him. So this is a common theme. Now, to accomplish this subjection of enemies, verse 2, Yahweh will send for the king's scepter from Zion, meaning the Lord's king 
will rule from Zion, from Jerusalem. And in verse 3, this king will have a group of willing people, an army ready to fight for their king. And they're dressed in holy garments. We'll see some of that later on. Verse 4 is the second oracle where Yahweh swears an oath and declares that this king is also a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now verse 4 is unexpected. Hearkening back to Genesis 14 as we'll see in a moment. Now What's unusual is verse 4 is there, but then verse 5, 6, and 7 go back to the first oracle and then continues to talk about the king at the right hand of God. This Lord King will shatter earthly kings on the day of his wrath and verse 6, execute judgment among the nations. And he will continue his work, verse 7, without a break. And he will be refreshing himself to continue the battle, continuing until it is over. Now, as David is king, and David is the author, this king priest must be greater than David. Certainly, David subdued his enemies in the right manner, but not, not across the world, right? So let's try and get into David's mind as he wrote this psalm. As the king of Israel, kings of Israel, they were commanded to actually write out the book of the law and then read it continually, day after day. Now perhaps David was looking around, he was seeing his city, Jerusalem. And then he was looking at the tabernacle and the priests offering sacrifices. And as he meditates on his kingship, maybe he comes across Genesis 14. As he reads about Melchizedek, he thinks, wow, he's a king priest. And it dawns on him, he's a king of Salem. Well, Jerusalem, the king of peace. And then the Holy Spirit moves him to write, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. See, it's this reference to Melchizedek that comes as really a surprise to us, right? Who is Melchizedek? The name appears only here, and one at a time, Back in Genesis 14. Way back in Genesis 14, Melchizedek comes out of the blue, right? Abraham has rescued his nephew Lot from being a prisoner of war, and on his way home, he meets this Melchizedek. And Genesis 14, 18-20 reads, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Melchizedek appears nowhere, out of nowhere. 
His name means King of Righteousness. Right? He's a priest of the Most High, King of Salem, meaning King of Peace. Then he disappears from the pages of Scripture until Psalm 110. What is the significance of Melchizedek? David is hinting here about a priest greater than the line of Aaron. Who is this Lord, the King Priest? Jesus must know. Jesus must know. So that's the second thing. The psalm according to Jesus. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 41. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law have been trying to trip Jesus up about questions with taxes, marriage and the resurrection, the great commandment. And then, after all their questions, Jesus said, well, let me ask you a question. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees, like a good game show participant, will say, the son of David. Ding! You got the right answer. Every Jew knew that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. But you know what? I think that answer got stuck in their throat. Why? The very day before, on what we call Palm Sunday, the crowds were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were praising Jesus as the Messiah. So the Pharisees made it to round one. For round two, Jesus asked, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then for question three was, If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? See, there's two major cultural undercurrents going on here. First, in Israel, lineage was key. The father was always more important than the son. And then the son's son was even less important. The Pharisees and all the people held this view. So any son of David would necessarily be lower than David. But there's another undercurrent is that the Pharisees, when they looked at Psalm 110, they looked on the surface. God would raise a, a greater divinity king to subdue his enemies. In their eyes, the Romans. So the Pharisees are truly baffled. They cannot see how Jesus could be the Psalm 110 divinity king priest. Jesus is from Nazareth, not Bethlehem, so they thought. From the tribe of Judah, not a descendant of Aaron the priest. Jesus was challenging the Pharisees to see that as a son of David, he is 
the Davidic king priest of Psalm 110. And Jesus would be greater in a way that would be crazy to the Pharisees. He would be the conquering king, but in a way no one accepted, not even his disciples. You see, Jesus is about to fulfill Psalm 110. So let's dive into that, where Jesus fulfills Psalm 110. To to examine this, I want to look at Jesus as priest, then Jesus as a conquering king, and then I'll show you the twist in the story. If you have a Bible, turn your app, your Bible, to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be just looking at some passages there very quickly. As I told you, it shows up over a dozen times in the book of Hebrews. I'll start with Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place, behind the curtain where Jesus has gone to be, has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the permanent priest of Psalm 110, able to deliver us because he's a high priest who op- offered up the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice himself. That's Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now turn back to Hebrews chapter 7, starting at verse 15. I'm going to summarize this section. Another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Here we see it again. Made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, verse 4 again of Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor, guarantor of a better covenant holding the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And then here's, here's the application. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Have you wondered what Jesus is sinning at the right hand doing, what is he doing sitting at the right hand of his father? Yes, he's subduing his enemies in Psalm 110, but here as we see in, in Romans and other places, he is interceding for us. He's praying for us. Because he is a permanent priest for us, we can draw near to him. 
He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So, here's, here's, here's the promise. No matter what you did last night, no matter what fight you have with your wife or kids on the way here, Jesus is waiting for us to draw near to him. And he is helping us by continually to pray for us. Can you hear him? This is what I hear. Father, I'm interceding for Paul this morning as he preaches. Father, Carol's mom died yesterday. Would you comfort the family? Father, this young man at Gospel Life needs a job. Lord, would you, would you give him the job? Jesus fulfills Psalm 110 as priest for us. Now, how about King? Psalm 110 tells us that the Lord Jesus is fighting against his enemies. But there will come a day of wrath when he will shatter the kings and execute judgment among nations. When did he do that? Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it, called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which is to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the wide press of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Here is the Lord of Psalm 110, the conquering king on his day of wrath. He will defeat his enemies and make, him, make them his footstool. But even after Revelation 19, there are still some enemies to defeat. Satan, hell, death. How will Jesus defeat these enemies? Through the cross. In a subverted backward twist, instead of Jesus using the weapon of judgment upon his enemies, he turns it upon himself. He becomes the enemy. He plunges the dagger of judgment into his own heart to fulfill Psalm 110. And this is the twist. Jesus becomes the enemy of Psalm 110 to become the Lord of Psalm 110. As we saw in the end of Hebrews in six, chapter 6 and 7, only through the cross can Jesus become the Lord of Psalm 110. His body is the curtain. He is the priest who offers the sacrifice. He is the sacrificial lamb of God offered for the sins of his people. 
at Calvary. He's demonstrating he is Lord of Psalm 110 by subduing his enemies, by first becoming the enemy. Now, at the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the moment that Jesus becomes the enemy of Psalm 110, the enemy of God the Father, who pours out his wrath of judgment on his son for the sins of his people. In one moment, Jesus goes from being the favored son to the enemy, becomes forsaken so that we can be forgiven. This is a twist. Jesus becomes the enemy of Psalm 10, 110 to become the Lord of Psalm 110. It is through his defeat on the cross that Jesus conquers our true enemies. Our greatest enemies are not Russia or the Taliban. The greatest enemy of the Pharisees and disciples was not Rome. Our greatest enemies are sin, Satan, hell, and death. Jesus becomes the king priest of Psalm 110 by conquering these enemies. At the cross, according to Colossians 2, 13 and 14, Jesus conquered sin by canceling the record of death, death that stood against us with legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus not only conquered sin, but he fulfilled Psalm 110 by subduing the enemy of death. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In destroying sin and death, Jesus ultimately conquers the devil and hell, the culmination being in Revelation 20.10, the devil who had deceived the nations was thrown into the lake of fire, and verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Not only do we have a king who has conquered our enemies, but he's our priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, to be our mediator, our savior. Jesus became the enemy of Psalm 10, 110, to suffer the wrath for our sins. He became the king of Psalm 110 to conquer 
our real enemies. And he became the high priest of Psalm 110 to mediate a new covenant through his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And we need Jesus to be all three to be rescued. As one of my seminary professors, D.A. Carson, so aptly put it, quote, God knows I need a king to subdue me and bring in the consummation. I need a priest to offer up himself as a supreme sacrifice, or I am undone. A perfect priest, one of a kind, a human being who nevertheless one with God. Ultimately, without mother or father in the ultimate sense, the everlasting of days, this is the Jesus of the gospel we proclaim. End quote. God knows, God knows that I need a king priest to subdue the sin in me. I don't know about you, but I continue to grab the controls of my kingdom from the Lord. I want to be king, actually. I, no, I want to rule the universe, but well, maybe not the whole thing. But I want to rule my universe. In the kingdom of self, I am anxious to show that I'm a good ruler. Why do I wake up at night with anxious thoughts? You see, my kingdom takes too much care to rule. And if I need a king priest, so do you. How are you doing running your kingdom these days? Let me ask you, have you been able to conquer the enemies of sin, death, and hell on your own. We are lousy rulers of our kingdom. We need a king priest to subdue sin in our lives. So this morning, I want to offer you, uh, we talked about game shows, two doors. Door one, Jesus as the king judge of Psalm 110 or Jesus as the king priest of Psalm 110. Through the first door, those who are not yet Christians, this is how you will meet the Lord of Psalm 110. It will be your crushing defeat, one of which you will never recover for eternity. But through the second door, Jesus is offering you to come Come to the king now. Plead with Jesus to conquer our unwilling hearts and join with the willing people of the redeemed. We're here to help you meet this king priest this morning. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that you have shown us who Jesus is as Lord of Psalm 110. When we hear Jesus saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon 
you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord, we come this morning and we ask you, Jesus, be our King, priest for us. In Christ we pray.